0: Welcome to the Contrast Church podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like him, and live out his mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Thank you, Mark. Man, isn't it just great? I just, that was just awesome. Uh, If you are younger than Mark, you should meet with him and have him just pour out wisdom on you because it's awesome and great. So we already got a meeting set up this week, I'm pumped. So uh, if you want to fill his schedule, do it. Um, I would like to take us back to November 1789, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, This was when Benjamin Franklin, wrote to French scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy, concerned that he hadn't heard about Leroy, or from Leroy since the start of the French Revolution, if you remember the French Revolution. Franklin wrote in French, the letter was later translated in 1817, and he was asking about Leroy's health and events in Paris for the past year, and Franklin gave a quick update about the major event in the United States, the Constitution's ratification, a year before, and the start of a new government under it. He penned one of his most well-known quotes. It says, Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And today we're going to talk about death and taxes. So if you would turn your Bibles, Mark was not kidding. We are uh, taking a nice stroll through the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 17. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back that you can steal and keep. Otherwise, you can use your phone. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the NET version. But if you want to read a different version, that's totally fine. We're going to start in verse 22. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll talk a little more. Uh, We are in, I think it's week 55 of Matthew. We've been going through the entire book over the last year or so. Uh, We'll finish on Easter of 2023. And um, if you're looking forward to that. And uh, just, you know, put that in your calendar. And um, we have just been basically just taking a slow stroll because we are trying to really just absorb Matthew's account of Jesus and his context and who he's writing to so that we might have a deep understanding of Jesus just in all these different angles. And it's been really cool. And Matthew's brilliant. He puts it into five main parts, five different like teaching blocks, which is what all the Jewish listeners knew. They, They followed the five books, first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so he was kind of relating to them. And so we are in part five. And uh, here we are. Verse 22. When they gathered together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And they became greatly distressed. Now, uh, we're going to talk about this passage and then the next passage, but before we get into this, the next passage, it's, it's really just interesting to just pause here. If you've been following Jesus' journey, Jesus picks these 12 disciples, ragtag guys, most teenagers, Jewish men. Um, He picks Matthew, a tax collector, who was really not liked by them. And they just are this group of guys following this crazy rabbi, honestly, right? Who walks around and heals people and casts out demons and teaches profound things that seem to flip everything upside down, gets in a little bit of fights, right, with the religious leaders. And they've been traveling this long journey. And now, in the book of Matthew specifically, it's mostly chronological, but now we are starting this journey um, to Jesus' final battle, if you will, in Jerusalem, where he'll be crucified and killed. And so if you look on the map uh, here, we love maps, at contrast church. If it will load, maybe not. It's taking a while. This happened last time. must be a high-resolution image, even though it's... But um, I'm sure you all have the whole globe memorized, right? So this won't be that hard, but... Um, especially the Middle East, right? You're, you're very concerned with that. Some people don't even know where Montana is in the U.S., so I doubt you know where it is. But basically, Jesus is traveling all around there, okay? And uh, he's going through different regions, and he's, he's starting his final descent into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the Jewish capital, where the temple is, where he'll be killed and crucified, right? And as he's starting that physical descent south, he has now, if you, if you looked in the first verse, they're in the region of Galilee. Region, think like state, right? And then the next um, passage is in Capernaum, which is a city, so it would be like saying Ohio and then Columbus. And uh, Capernaum, he had done a bunch of things there, and he was well-known there. But as they're traveling, he keeps reminding them, like, hey, 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 this thing is going to happen, right? And the first time he told them it didn't go very well, uh, Peter was like, no, not going to happen, like rebukes, yells at Jesus. He's like, you're an idiot. It's not going to happen, right? No way. And then Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You're not going to ruin this journey, and then in this one, we see basically a similar short and condensed version except that he adds betrayal. So he know, they know that someone is going to betray him. And it says that he will be killed. And what's funny is he, he says on the third day he will be raised. But then they're greatly distressed. So clearly they just skimmed over that and was like, he's going to die. What's going to happen, right? you think if, like, you would be like, oh, okay, well, what do you mean by raised? Like, you're going to resurrect, so we shouldn't be worried. But no, they're greatly distressed because they're so focused on their plan of what Jesus is going to do, and this is, not, this is shattering that, right? Which is why Peter was like, no, you're not going to die. Are you kidding me? How are we going to take over the world if you die? But you got to think about it from the disciples' perspective, right? I mean, they left everything, family, vocation, job, to follow this guy around. We really no money, nothing. They just kind of traveled all around. And I don't know about you, but um, it, it's nice to be on the winning team, Right? <laughs> Like, uh, we, have, we have two fantasy football leagues in our church, and some of the guys that are really behind are already kind of giving up, right? And the other guys are trading and reading articles and are in it, right? If you're on the losing team, you're like, why do I even care anymore, right? And so why would Jesus be saying these things as we're heading into a really big deal? It's almost like the end of his political campaign. He's like, I think I'm just going to tap out. I don't think we're going to win, right? You'd be like... Great speech, Jesus. I'm pumped, right? You'd be be confused. It wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't go into the Super Bowl at halftime and the captain be like, we're going to play average and we might win, right? You're like, no, we're going to be amazing and we're going to destroy everyone and everyone screams and runs out there and wins, right? So Jesus is clearly not, apparently a very good motivational speaker. Um, But the disciples are having their, they're wrestling with all this, right? They followed him because he met them in in a moment. Spirit calls him and they follow him and the whole time they're just trying to reconcile who is this teacher and what does it mean to live like him. He was a rabbi, right? And in that culture, you'd walk behind the rabbi. You literally, like, you're in the snow, right? Have you ever done this? Like, you're in the snow and it's super deep and someone's in front of you and you're like, I'm just gonna walk in their steps, right? Even if they're awkward. That's what that's what you did with a rabbi. And so they're like, okay, well, he thinks this about this and he does this to the poor and he talks about he talks about to the. Pharisees and religious leaders like this, and they're trying to navigate all this in light of what they knew about the Old Testament, about the Jewish people and about this coming Messiah. And Matthew is writing to the same Jewish listeners who are like, "Is this guy really it? Is he really the Messiah?" And so it's just kind of fascinating that there's three times where Jesus is like, "Look, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you in on what's about to happen." Obviously, we know the end of the story, and when they find out the end and everything in like the book of Acts, they come back to this and they're like, "Oh my gosh right? He was letting us in on this this suffering, this impending um, death, but he was also letting us in on the resurrection. And so as we, we move from that, that little passage, this is kind of their, like I said, their minds are, I think at this point, trying to figure out, okay, what is like really going to happen? Is he just going to gather an army? Are we going to storm Jerusalem? Are we going to defeat Rome? Because Rome was subjugating Jerusalem at the time, right? Or, uh, Israel, really. And like, what's going to happen? And they're, they're racking their brains. And then uh, we get an unfortunate moment for Peter in verse 24. They arrive in Capernaum, which is the city where they did a lot of ministry, and Jesus, was. they had done a lot of things, so they knew them. They're staying at Peter's house. The collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, your teacher pays the double drachma tax, doesn't he? Now, uh, you're, you're probably like, I don't even know what that means. So what's a drachma? Um, and... Um, you're, but, but you don't realize this, but this is an incredibly like tense moment for Peter. Uh, it'd be like saying, "Hey, are you a Republican or Democrat? Hey, what do you think about border control? Hey, what do you think about global warming? Is it real?" Right? Like, at the end of that conversation, you're either going to love or hate that person, for the most part. Right? Probably very little in between. You're like, "I kind of hated and loved them at the same time." Right? You're like, "Are an idiot or they're really smart and they read the right people." Right? So in this moment, it's it's essentially that. Right? And what's funny is if you, if you read like the way that it's written grammatically, they're, they're, they're not really like asking, they're like kind of assuming, right? Like, hey, he pays the tax, doesn't he? They're not like, does he? Do, do, yeah, what do you think about it? And so they're asking poor Peter, he's at his house, and they're asking about this tax. Now, this tax was, at this time, Peter's time, first century, was called the temple tax. And it was uh, two drachmas Per, per male Jewish person over the age of 20, like a Jewish adult, right? We say 18, and in this, in this tax it was 20, right? And uh, your Bible might say uh, shekel, because four drachmas equals one shekel, and so it was a half shekel tax. That was what it was known as. And so what happened is if you were a Jewish male, you, and you were of the age of 20 or older, you would, uh, if you went to Jerusalem for the Passover once a year, you would pay your tax there. Or if you were in the surrounding regions, they would come and collect it a month early, which is where they're at. They're in Capernaum. They're collecting it a month early. And what's funny is you had to pay in a special Tyrrhenian currency. So not only did your, your like shekels, drachmas, denarius, what is all this, right? Uh, we have the dollar bill. And cryptocurrency, which, what is that? No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but uh, they would have to exchange it. So at the temple, you have this large section, the colonnade, where you'd go and you'd get ripped off by exchange rates, like trying to exchange currency in the airport, just don't do it because it's like the worst exchange. You're like, here's $100, and here's two back, right? So it was kind of like that. So they pay this tax every year. Now, the problem was, and this is what we have to kind of understand the context of Jewish culture, was this was a pretty provocative thing. It was not always agreed upon by different groups of people. And the reason why, and I'm going to show you, is in the front half of your Bible. If you want to turn there, I will have it on the screen in case you're stressed about turning the whole to the front of the Bible. But Exodus 30, Exodus 30, This is probably the part of the scripture where you start to tune out because you're like, a bunch of rules and weird specific specifications and types of wood and, you know, you're like, why does it need to be cedar, right? (laughs) So you probably don't read this a lot or remember it, but um, this is God giving Moses instructions on specific things. And in this passage, in this section, and then what will come in the next two books, is the the specifications, I'm going to simplify this, the specifications of how to keep God around, Right? It's how to keep his presence around a, a group of sinful people that he chose as his nation to represent his love to the world now. And so they had to have this specific tabernacle. It had to have material and square footage and everything. It had to be specific and precise. And in that, if they did all those things right, the presence of God could be present among the Israelites. And, but the problem was they sin and they break rules and they are missing the mark of God's righteousness. And so they had to have things that fix that atonement. And so this is one of those forms. And if you look, your Bible probably says ransom, ransom money, which is accurate. And so I'm going to read this passage and you're going to to get the history of the temple tax right here. The Lord spoke to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites, the Jewish people, according to their number, the amount of them, then each man is to pay a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, so there will be no more plague among them when you number them. Everyone who crosses over to those who are numbered, is to pay this, a half shekel, two drachma, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel weighed 20 gerahs. it's like the weight of it. A half shekel is to be an offering to the Lord. Everyone who crosses over to those numbered, basically who turns from 20 years old and up, is to pay an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to pay more, and the poor are not to pay less than half the shekel when giving the offering of the Lord to make atonement of your lives. You are to receive the atonement money from the Israelites. And you're to give it for the service of the tent meeting, which is like the priests and the conduction of that it will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord to make atonement for your lives Now if you know your, if you know kind of the stories before this, um, the Israelites had been enslaved by Egypt they were God brought them out through the plagues and all that kind of crazy stuff parts of the Red Seas they're here and they build this tabernacle to usher in the presence of God and basically what God is telling Moses to tell the people is, I want you to remember what I did for you. And one of the ways you'll do that is through money. You'll do it through sacrifice as well. Like they'd sacrifice things and stuff like that. But you're going to do it through money. And here's the thing. All people are equal in the eyes of God. They're all made in the image of God. You don't get 10% God and that person gets 5%, right? Like we're all made in the image of God. Every person has dignity in light of God. And he says, so if you're rich, you're not going to win me over with money. And if you're poor, you've got to find the money because it matters. And so he said, everybody's going to pay the same amount. And the last verse really sums it up. It was a memorial and reminder of what God has done for you, that he has atoned for the ability for you to be in the presence of, of me. So that's all well and good. But the problem is, is that this was during a census, which was not done all the time. This was specifically after they had come out of Egypt. And like, let's round everyone up, see how many people we have, right? Figure out how many people God saved, right? And... Um, and in census, typically in this culture, they'd only count the men, which is unfortunate. But that's why only men had to pay. So women, I you're kind of you got off there, which is nice. Um, but in, in first century Jewish culture, the tabernacle was now the temple. It was this beautiful temple in Jerusalem. It's still there today. It's like half Muslim, half Jewish. It's a big battle point of contention, but it's still there today. And they would go through these sacrifices. And if you've ever seen a photo of the temple or like a, a replica scale model. It's massive. like even just like the cement, the concrete, the marble that like gives you the floor of the of the temple is huge. It's like a million OSU parking lots for a stadium. it's like it just you're like who would pull the weeds for all the like all that like it would take forever. So they had to have money to, to run the temple and and also Rome when they were uh, subjugating Israel, built a castle right beside a fortress to make sure with archers like nobody did anything crazy because that had been historically occurring in the last 100 years before this. So, so there's all this tension. There's, they have to pay the bills. Like, just like this, we've got to pay the bills. Someone has to clean the floor. Otherwise, it's gross and no one wants to come. So we have to clean the floor. So people would give tithes and offerings and sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. They'd make money on that. They'd make money on the exchanging the terrible rates of the currency. And then they'd also make money off the temple tax. If you think about it, if there's like a million Jews every year and they're paying two days' wages, which is what two drachmas is, which for today, let's just say, three to $500, right? And they're making a good million and a half on this to run the temple. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty consistently well-known thing if you're a Jewish male. Now, the problem is, and the reason why this question now that you're getting it is so charged is because it wasn't mandatory. It was not like Rome. It's like, hey, if you don't pay our taxes, we're going to break your kneecaps and kill your family. It was... Hey, don't you love the Jewish people? Aren't you patriotic? Don't you want Yahweh to remain here and to be revered? And and but you didn't you didn't have to do it. And the reason why was because the Pharisees were extremely conservative. They took the rules that God gave them and they like went like we're just gonna make a bigger boundary, right? Make it even harder for people to jump inside and ruin things. And then the Sadducees were more liberal. They were more progressive at this time, and they were like, no, I'm paying it one time. And that's it. I'm not paying it every year. They didn't, they didn't do it then, the census. I'm going to pay it one time. Now, when you do the math, like if you had to pay this right now, you're like, $500 or like $15,000 over my lifetime, right? You're like, going to pay $500, right? So the, it was tense because the opinion of the Sadducees was we pay less and everyone's like, I don't know about you, but I'd like to pay less taxes. But then the Pharisees, everybody kind of like wanted to play the game with them because they were the most spiritually rigorous, religiously vigorous. So this poor Peter, this tax collector comes up, and the tax collector probably doesn't have a horse in the race necessarily. They might, Based on their question, they're probably wanting with the Pharisees. But they're saying, hey, your teacher, Jesus, he pays the temple tax, right? And uh, so that's where we go in this moment. So if you're wondering, you're like, why does this matter? There's a lot riding on this statement, right? It would be like if someone got you in front of a bunch of people and said, hey, what's your stance on X, Y, Z? And you knew it was controversial... And you're like, ooh, if I don't answer, they'll judge me. If I do answer, half people will hate me. Anybody ever deal with that where, like, in our culture today, you even get reamed for not saying something? Like, people assume what you're not saying means you're saying. Does that make sense? So if I don't post something about something, people assume that I'm whatever, right? It's ridiculous. You can't win. If you post something, you don't win. If you don't post something, you don't win. The only way is just not exist online, I guess. And then, and then people are like, why isn't he on social media, right? People can always judge you. Right? Honestly. Like, if I wasn't such me, would be like, oh, what is he? Like, he can't handle the internet, you know? You can't win. You can't win. Okay? And uh, it's just the world we live in. So that was my 10 seconds of cynicism. So, so Jesus is, is not even here. He's in the house, and Peter is like, oh. So Peter, though, his response is unique. He says this, the next verse. He says, um, yes. Easy, right? And he says yes. Now, people, scholars debate. Uh, there's a lot of like opinions on this. G- Peter has been with Jesus for almost three years. This tax is annual, so there's a good chance that Peter is like, "Yeah, we pay the tax. We did it last year." Now, that's not for sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, but they, they probably would have addressed this at some point with him because they were traveling around, and they would have. They're Jewish. They, they are. I mean, they are law-abiding Jewish citizens. And so it's possible that, Jesus, that Peter knew, yeah, we have paid the tax, we pay the tax, we do that. Or that Peter just knows, well, yeah, Jesus is a Jew, like, he's a Jew, we teach in synagogues, he knows the Torah, he's went through the training, he's, he loves Yahweh, like, of course. But what's interesting is when he comes back into the house, Jesus' response, Jesus, as he comes into the house, he speaks to him first before he says anything, With Peter's probably like, I hope I said the right thing, right? Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? He calls him his Jewish name. From whom do earthly kings collect tolls and, or taxes? Your, your translation might say debts or duties or whatever. From their sons or from foreigners? And after Peter, or Simon, he says, from foreigners. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, if we just stop there, we're like, what is happening? What's going on here? Right? Like, now, we live in America, and we have a democracy and what that beautiful thing means is that ain't nobody the king, which means that everybody's got to pay taxes or at least appear to pay taxes, right? Like if you're a, the daughter son of Joe Biden or the president or, or a senator, like you pay taxes, or at least it seems, right? They have to fill out a 1040 of some sort. Probably have a lot of other papers they've got to fill out, but we all pay taxes, right? If I become the president, my daughter will still have to file taxes. Is probably the better word, Okay. Now, if you live in a country with a king or a queen, not counting Great Britain, because theirs is more of just, it's like, you know, celebrity kind of thing. Like, they can't just make all the decisions. You own everything, okay? And in this culture, kings and queens were prominent. You own everything, meaning you call the shots on the treasury. You call the shots, you make the rules, you change rules, right? Like, we've seen that. We know history. That's how it works. And so if I was a king and I owned all the money and I made all the taxes and all the calls, I'm not going to tax my family. That's dumb. Right? Like, why would I do that? Some translations don't even say foreigners. They say citizens or others. It's just people who aren't family. You don't tax your own kids. Right? Because you own it. Now, what Jesus is doing here is incredibly provocative. He's doing a couple different things. The first thing he's doing is, remember the ransom payment and the temple tax? Well, the ransom payment was paid to the temple. Who owns the temple? Yahweh, God, the Father, I mean, sure, like the Jewish people like maybe own the land, right? Just like you own your house, right? And, but God owns it all, right? And so God the Father owns the temple and people pay him to not only to remember and to memorialize what he's done for them, but to, to keep the functions going of the temple that needed to happen. And Jesus is like, simply, I'm God's son. I don't got to pay that. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. He's saying, I am a son of God. And, and he has said this. And they're starting to really figure out what that means, right? The Messiah, the Son of God, what does that mean? He says, I don't need to pay that. The sons are free. God's not going to charge me. In fact, I've never wronged him. I don't have to atone. I've never sinned. Like, I don't, they don't need to do that. And I also know coming forward, I am going to be the final atonement. So this is going to be irrelevant, right? The sons don't need to pay. And Jesus is, is putting this in Peter's mind and all these disciples' minds who were paying the tax and who were willing to deal with it. But what's really cool is Jesus is just reminding them again and again who he was. Remember in Matthew 3, when he was baptized, God the Father comes down. He says, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased, which is like, okay, sonship, I get it. And then just a couple weeks ago, Matthew 17, the transfiguration, he goes up on a mountain, God says, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. So we know that God the Father is affirming the sonship of Jesus. And Jesus called himself the Son of Man, the Son of God, right? So he's building this this core identity of Jesus, and he's discipling his disciples into what that means because his disciples are following him and they're learning and walking in his way. And so if we just stop there, let's just say, like, that was it. Parable or story over, right? Let's just say that someone asked me what my opinion was on a political view, and I said, I don't need to have an opinion, you know? People would be like, well, that's an opinion, right? Right? And so what he does brilliantly and very cleverly is if he just stopped here, he said, well, I'm exempt, right? That's going to cause some chaos. What it's going to do is it's going to say the Pharisees are like, who do you think you are, right? You're not going to pay. You, don't, you think you're a son of God? That's heresy. You think that you don't have to pay? That's not like, right? And then the Sadducees would be like, oh, maybe he's in our camp. Maybe he's like, no, I'm only paying it once, right? And so everybody is going to take this small thing that he says and they're just going to blast it into a million different opinions about what they think he meant right? Which doesn't sound, does that sound familiar at all today, right? You said this. No, I didn't say that. Well, I'm interpreting what I think that you meant when you said that. And you're like, well, it's Twitter. I only had like 50 characters, okay? so, But that, if, he, if he stopped there, as he's heading to Jerusalem, it would cause chaos. And remember, his goal now, when his first words out of his mouth in ministry were, repent, the kingdom of God is here, right? He's showing the kingdom. He's saying, in heaven, this is what it'll look like. I'll do it on earth right here. It shifts to, in order for this to occur, for you guys to see all this reality come forever, I got to go be sacrificed. And that's why, as we start the southern journey in Matthew, the narrative and priority of Jesus starts to change. Like I said, he does like two healings basically in the next like nine chapters, the rest of the book. Like he stops all that and focuses more on content and dialogue and understanding the kingdom and the heart of it and and all that. And he starts to argue with Pharisees. And so his priority now is honestly that people like understand the kingdom and what is going to have to happen in order. That's why he's telling, hey guys, two, three times. I'm going to die. They're going to hand me over. They're going to torture me. You're going to betray me. And then I'm going to raise again. And they're like, what? And, and so that if we stop there, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 27, he says this, which is just a weird verse. But so that we don't offend them, go to the lake, which is the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, that's where they're at. Go to the lake, throw out a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a four drachma coin. Take that and give that to them for me and you. He's talking to Peter, me and you. I mean, okay, this is just weird because basically Jesus is just like, hey, Peter, you're a fisherman. Why don't you just go out of the lake, just throw a cast out there, first fish, got it, coin, pay it, no big deal, right? It seems very nonchalant. Like, let's not worry about this, doesn't it? Like, the tone, the posture. We don't even find out. Like, there's no writing. Matthew's not like, and so Peter did that. Like, we assume it happened because they had to have probably paid the tax or we would have heard about it. But The idea, it was just, like, weird. And it wasn't uncommon in this period. You know, you had these massive fishermen who were net fishing. They'd pull out hundreds of fish. They'd gut hundreds of fish every day. It wasn't uncommon for shiny things to end up in the mouth of the fish. They like shiny things. It's why you shouldn't throw coins in a koi pond, okay? I'm telling you, if you do that, it's not worth it. Okay, your penny is not worth a $1,000 fish, okay? But anyways, he's, like, throw out a cast and reel in a fish. I don't know about you if you're a fisherman. My first cast is typically in the trees. So... He's just like, go out there and sling one out. Easy, right away, right? No big deal. Just pull out the fish. It'll have, you know, two shekels, for drachma, pay the tax, we're done, right? That's, that's a wild story in and of itself Or you're like, okay, kind of like, kind of like, like left field. But, um, but the, the, the most provocative part in that verse is the first line. So that we don't offend them. Some translations say like scandalize. If you've been following along for any amount of weeks, you'd probably realize that Jesus really doesn't care if he offends people. Would you agree? I mean, he said some kind of mean things. Like if he tweeted that or he posted that, people would be, very, they'd have a lot of those angry faces on the status, right? And, right, and that, that's just the truth. Like, right, He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, vipers, hypocrites, right? Like these, these terms that, that are not endearing. But he's never done that to the the downtrodden, the sick, right? He definitely knows who he's talking to and what approach needs to happen. But he definitely has not consistently been worried about if he offends people. And this is why we're going through Matthew for a million weeks, is because if you read this story, you say, oh, well, we're not supposed to offend anyone ever, right? And you just pull that little verse out and you put it on a little square and you throw it on Instagram and you say, Christians are never supposed to be offensive in any way. But then you read the whole 17 chapters before that, and you're like, there's like at least five obvious things that he said that were inflammatory and incited the Pharisees. And so, what's going on here? Because in my opinion, if you want to be, if you want to have a good, like, belief in theology, you got to take it all. Right? You can't just be like, well, then, and I don't want to talk about that. Right? Let's just rip those pages out, right? Make the Bible a little shorter. And so, what do we do with all of this? What is going on here that Jesus all of a sudden starts to care? And I, and I think what we're we're realizing is like I said, this journey that he's starting, his priorities are starting to shift. It's not that he doesn't still care about repentance in the kingdom of God, but it's that in order for that to occur, sacrifice has to be made. This whole temple tax, this whole sacrificial system, this whole sin that was not on your heart, it was more on like your hands, and it was like guilt and shame ridden, right? It was like you do this or whatever. He's like, I'm gonna be done with that. I'm gonna I'm gonna provide a way that all of that can just be done through me. And so his focus now is that and he doesn't want to worry about all the noise if he did pay the tax or didn't pay the tax and all of the worries about what people assume of him. He says, "Look, I'm am exempt. I don't have to pay this, but I will." That's basically what he's saying. It's not a big like he's like, it's not a big deal. Like it's not he's paying. It's funny, he's paying for the people who will kill him in like a few months which is ironic, right? Some of you are like, I'm not giving my money to the IRS. I don't trust what they do with it. And I'm like, well, are they going to kill you? Because Jesus knew what was going to go here. And he's like, take the money out of the fish, right? Now, I'm not saying you get right to just not pay your taxes or whatever. It's not the point of this. But he's just like, it, it just, he's, just, he's accommodating. He's actually accommodating. That's probably the best word to describe this entire passage is Jesus decides to accommodate. Now, this is a very dangerous word because Christians, what they'll do is they'll take this and they'll say, Well, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bar with my friends, I'm just gonna get drunk, everybody's getting drunk, I'm just accommodating, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be a big deal, right? And you start to like lose your core beliefs because you're trying to accommodate, right? So there's a danger to this, right? We don't just take this and say, Well, we can just let anybody do whatever. Oh, I, well, my friend was, got on my car and robbed a gas station, and I drove him away, I was just trying to accommodate, like I didn't wanna make a big deal, you know? Didn't wanna be political about robbing banks and gas stations, right? And you're like, no, what do you mean? Don't like That's not okay. Don't be a part of that. So he's not just saying, like, be loosey-goosey, right? There's clear stands that Jesus has made, but it seems like the stands that he makes is for prideful, corrupt hearts versus menial things that, that are not necessarily this big kingdom issue. Meaning, he calls the Pharisees out for their hypocr- hypocrisy, their pride, their hardness of heart, their, their evil trajectory. But in this moment... I think this tax collector is just kind of trying to do his job, right? Right? It's like when people come—I don't know. Hopefully, you've never had this, but when people come and serve you, like they like have to serve you for court or whatever, and they have to like give it to you physically, typically like the thing. Like those people, man—they they, they face a beating sometimes, and all they're doing is like, here, just take the paper. I got like I'm not court, okay? Here's your paper. And in the same way, he's he's like, look, it's just he's just trying to center in on what is really mattering, and it's this idea that he needs to go and he needs to suffer. Now, there's two things that are, is, is, is I think, the reasoning when we read this behind accommod- why he's accommodating. The first one is that we've learned this the whole time, is that he is discipling his disciples this whole time. Remember a rabbi, you walk in their feet behind them, and he's teaching them and has given the authority to heal, to cast out demons, to do all these things. But he's also teaching them the way of the kingdom. He's teaching them the ethics of it, the way that it works. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are these, here's the things, you might have said this, but it's actually this, right? He's teaching them these things. And so what he's doing is he's reminding them, and will be reminded in the future, that you are family, that you are a child of God. And that we live under what we call the new covenant, under Jesus' death, and we don't have to pay for salvation. Praise God. We We don't have to pay an atonement. Jesus has done that. It's a free gift. And when we accept that gift, we are a child of God. We are in the family of God, and God does not tax his people. Meaning, like, he doesn't need you to earn your salvation. He doesn't need you to earn, he doesn't need to be impressed by you, right? He's not like, wow, look at you. You're so impressive, and you have this degree, or you make this much money. Or, like, he, he's not, yeah, he cares, but he's not, he's not withholding love on a basis of that. And in this moment, Jesus is, is he's kind of speaking this belief over them before they really even know it hey, I'm a child of God, you're a child of God, you're free. It's free, you don't have to pay. And that's why I'm here, I'm, 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 not, I'm fulfilling the reality of the temple and what it meant in my life and my death and resurrection. The second thing that he centers in on, uh, which is kind of hard to see until you really think about it, is he is actually giving us a beautiful case study on what it means to be self-confident and secure. Now, not like arrogant confidence, like, I'm great, look at me. Self-confidence and security. Jesus is by far the most secure human being we know. He was, and and, and he modeled that through constant prayer and relationship with the Father, right? Constant prayer and relationship, always praying through the next steps and his heart and his insecurities and all that stuff, right? When you walk into a room with someone and you were to say, that person, they're secure, they're self-confident, Would you say that if the person just never shut up and could never be wrong? Or would you say that about the person who actually knows when to pick their shots, right? Like nobody, when you're in a room with people, the person who can never be proven wrong has to prove everyone else right, that person is not secure, actually. They're actually insecure, and they're doing that out of insecurity because they want to impress people, they want to appear smart, they can't allow people to have differences of opinions and and let that kind of find discernment to when to speak into those things. As a pastor, I was at a, co- a pastor's conference this week with a bunch of really awesome pastors. And it's funny. We all sit around the room, and um, everybody knows our church sizes. And it's based on, like, we, we, put, we get put into, like, small groups to talk about our problems of a church of 150 is not the same as a church of 10,000. <laughs> you know, I'm like, we're just trying to pay our bills. And they're like, what's the fifth level of our org chart? on the, You know, so it's just very different, right? And... Um, and, but it, it can become very easy to be like, I'm doing the right thing and you're not, and let me tell you why you're not, right? And it's even harder as a pastor when you walk into a room, I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but let's just say common people, you people. I walk into a room, and, and, and the pastor is, for lack, I'm just trying to simplify it here, it's not always the case, but is probably the most theologically astute person in the room, right? Raise your hand if you've been to seminary. Anybody? See, so... So, no, no, no. doesn't mean I'm better than you. doesn't mean I'm smarter than you. And, in fact, knowledge without humility puffs you up. There's a proverb on that, and you're a Pharisee, right, which we do not want to be. Jesus is very, calls them hypocrites, all that mean stuff, right? But if you were a microbiologist, and you walked into a room with me, and we were just sitting around watching the football game, like, I'm not even going to touch you on what you're studying. Like, I don't even know. Like, I'm like, tell me what you're doing. You're like, oh, I'm working on photosynthesis of this thing with that. And I'm like, cool, do you use, like, beakers? Like, what? You know, do you wear a lab coat Like, you know what I'm saying? I have no idea. So in this this moment, it's like the security of someone is truly, I can walk into a room and I don't need to be anything to anyone. And that's not a scoff, like you're a biker. I don't need to prove anything, right? It's I am so secure in who Jesus says that I am, that I don't need to prove, I don't need to become influential, I don't need to brag, I don't need to prove people wrong. And if I do need to prove people wrong, right, with the truth, I know when to call my shots. I'm in prayer. I'm discerning. I'm following the lead of the Spirit, which is what Jesus did. So for many of you, some of you just need to chill out. And others of you need, like, you're, you're accommodating far too much because you're afraid of what they'll think of you. And so Jesus gives us a perfect case study of this balance of accommodating where we find what are the, what are the hills prayerfully that we believe that is a Jesus hill? What are the hills that we will die on? We don't care if we get mean comments online. We don't care if people don't talk to us. We're just, this is it. This is the truth, and we believe in it, and we have a backbone. But what are the things where we just got to chill out? We just got to chill out. Like, if you're spending several hours of your day angry at other people for their views, you are totally missing the point. I'm not saying you can't be upset with the injustices of the world. That is sin and malevolence, and it's there. But if you're just spending all your time building cynicism, building hatred, and Jesus is just like, just go throw get a coin and pay the tax. He's not like, oh man, I hate the temple and I'm just going to destroy it. And it's just, I don't even, I, you don't even realize, right? Because he could be like going on this monologue. He doesn't do it. So for us, we need to be a people that can discernfully accommodate people, and we can only do that when we're secure in Christ. You can only do that when you remember before anything is ever said about you. You are loved, and you are a child of God. And children are free. That's the grace of Jesus. So as I invite Nick up here, as we transition, I want to read this quote from R.T. France. He's been walking through Matthew with us. He's a commentator. And he just says, he just kind of sums this all up, because, you know, there's a lot of different, it's a hard passage to interpret. He says, Whatever the reason of this, the principle at stake is one which can, and should be more widely, uh, widely applied. He says, while there are times when a disciple must make an unpopular stand and so alienate others, many of the issues and practices on which we might legitimately differ from conventionally are not worth fighting over. And he says this, a Christian community which sets up stumbling blocks only when it is really necessary is likely to be more effective in mission. I just love that. Don't set up don't set up unnecessary stumbling blocks. And he's just—he's reminding us that our life as a child of God is free and that in that security, we can discern and pray through what are the accommodations and what do they look like, right? Sometimes I, I, I it's funny, we were, Sarah and I were on a, uh, a date yes, uh, yesterday or two days ago at this place and I was talking to this guy beside me. And it's funny, like, I'm, I'm theologically astute, right? I have a degree. In, and when I talk to my own people, nobody cares. Nobody's like, oh, my gosh, tell me about your classwork, right? They're like... I don't know, I kind of went to church, right? And I'm like, let me talk to you about sanctification and glorification, right? Nobody cares, right? So in those moments, I have to be willing to be like, I'm not impressive. I'm a normal human who was saved by Jesus. And this person needs Jesus. And I'm going to tell them what Jesus did for me. He could also do for you. That simple, right? It's that simple. You don't need to be impressive. You don't need to, like, make it harder than it needs to be. You don't need to be afraid of telling someone that. You want freedom? I got the answer. And so as we take a time to reflect on this, we've, um, we used to call this reflection time. We actually want to start calling it formation time because I think it's more accurate. Our mission statement is to help people be with Jesus. That's relationship. To become like him, becoming formed to the image of him, and to be on mission with others, and then we do that together. And so formation means that if, if you follow Jesus, that you are actively becoming more like Jesus, meaning if you are not more patient as you grow in Jesus, you're missing something. If you are not more generous as you grow in faith in Jesus, you're missing something. You get it? So these are four ways and just practices that we can dive in as a community together that matter. Don't treat it as a checklist. God, you're not earning anything, right? It's free. So we have prayers. People in the back would love to pray for you wherever you're at, whether you're a Christian or not. We'd love to pray for you. Reflection, you can reflect on anything I've said. Mark gave the worship. Uh, we also we ha- want to have a time of giving because giving is not only faith and obedience, it's worship. So there's a time of just like, I I feel a burden to be generous. Um, We have a box in the back, you can give online. And then lastly, we have the bread and cup, which we offer every Sunday. And that is a reminder of the atonement, of the final sacrifice, the price that Jesus paid so that we might be free. So we're going to give you a few minutes. I'm just going to play. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.